Section 11 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 8, Great Rulers, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Oliver Cromwell, Part 1. A.D. 1599 to 1658. English Revolution. The most difficult character in history to treat critically, and the easiest to treat rhetorically, perhaps, is Oliver Cromwell. After two centuries and more he is still a puzzle. His name, like that of Napoleon, is a doubt. Some regard him with unmingled admiration, some detest him as a usurper, and many look upon him as a hypocrite. Nobody questions his ability, and his talents were so great that some bow down to him on that account, out of reverence for strength, like Carlyle. On the whole he is a popular idol, not for his strength, but for his cause, since he represents the progressive party in his day in behalf of liberty at least until his protectorate began. Then new issues arose, and while he appeared as a great patriot and enlightened ruler, yet he reigned as an absolute monarch, basing his power on a standing army. But whatever may be said of Cromwell as statesman, general, or ruler, his career was remarkable and exceedingly interesting. His character, too, was unique and original, hence we are never weary of discussing him. In studying his character and career, we also have our minds directed to the great ideas of his tumultuous and agitated age, for he, like Napoleon, was the product of revolution. He was the offspring of mighty ideas. He did not create them. Original thinkers set them in motion, as Rousseau enunciated the ideas which led to the French Revolution. The great thinkers of the 16th and 17th centuries were divines, the men whom the Reformation produced. It was Luther preaching the right of private judgment, and Calvin pushing out the doctrine of the majesty of God to its remotest logical sequence, and Latimer appealing to every man's personal responsibility to God, and Gustavus Adolphus fighting for religious liberty, and the Huguenots protesting against religious persecution, and Thomas Cromwell sweeping away the abominations of the papacy, and the Geneva divines who settled in England during the reign of Elizabeth. It was all these that produced Oliver Cromwell. He was a Puritan and hence he was a reformer, not in church matters merely, but in all those things which are connected with civil liberty. For there is as close a connection between Protestantism and liberty as between Catholicism and absolutism. The Puritans intensely hated everything which reminded them of Rome, even the holidays of the church, organs, stained glass, cathedrals, and the rich dresses of the clergy. They even tried to ignore Christmas and Easter, although consecrated by the early church. They hated the Middle Ages, looked with disgust upon the past, and longed to try experiments, not only in religion, but in politics and social life. The only antiquity which had authority to them was the Jewish commonwealth, because it was a theocracy, and recognized God Almighty as the supreme ruler of the world. Hence they adhered to the strictness of the Jewish Sabbath, and baptized their children with Hebrew names. Now to such a people, stern, lofty, ascetic, legal, spiritual, conservative of whatever the Bible reveals, yet progressive and ardent for reforms, the rule of the Stuarts was intolerable. It was intolerable because it seemed to lean toward Catholicism, and because it was tyrannical and averse to changes. The king was ruled by favorites, and these favorites were either bigots in religion, like Archbishop Laud, or were tyrannical and unscrupulous in their efforts to sustain the king in despotic measures and crush popular agitations, like the Earl of Strafford, or were the men of pleasure and vanity, like the Duke of Buckingham. Charles I was detested by the Puritans even more than his father James. They looked upon him as more than half a papist, 
a despot, utterly insincere, indifferent to the welfare of the country, intent only on exalting himself and his throne at the expense of the interests of the people, whose aspirations he scorned and whose rights he trampled upon. In his eyes they had no rights, only duties, and duties to him as an appointed sovereign, to rule as he liked, with parliaments or without parliaments, yea, to impose taxes arbitrarily and grant odious monopolies, for the state was his, to be managed as a man would manage a farm, and those who resisted this encroachment on the liberties of the nation were to be fined, imprisoned, executed, as pestilent disturbers of the public peace. He would form dangerous alliances with Catholic powers, marry his children to Catholic princes, appoint Catholics to high office, and compromise the dignity of the nation as a Protestant state. His ministers, his judges, his high officials were simply his tools, and perpetually insulted the nation by their arrogance, their venality, and their shameful disregard of the Constitution. In short, he seemed bent on imposing a tyrannical yoke, hard to be endured and to punish unlawfully those who resisted it or even murmured against it. He would shackle the press and muzzle the members of Parliament. Thus did the king appear to the Puritans, at this time a large and influential party, chiefly Presbyterian, and headed by many men of rank and character, all of whom detested the Roman Catholic religion as the source of all religious and political evils, and who did not scruple to call the papacy by the hardest names, such as the Scarlet Mother, Antichrist, and the like. They had seceded from the established church in the reign of Elizabeth, and became what was then called nonconformists. Had they been treated wisely, had any respect been shown to their opinions and rights? For the right of worshipping God according to individual conscience is the central and basal pillar of Protestantism. Had this undoubted right of private judgment, the great emancipating idea of that age, been respected, the Puritans would have sought relief in constitutional resistance, for they were conservative and loyal, as English people have ever been, even in Canada and Australia. They were not bent on revolution, they only desired reform. So their representatives in Parliament framed the famous Petition of Right, in which were reasserted the principles of constitutional liberty. This earnest, loyal, but angry Parliament, being troublesome, was dissolved, and Charles undertook for eleven years to reign without one, against all precedents, with Stafford and Loud for his chief advisers and ministers. He reigned by star-chamber decrees, high-commission courts, issuing proclamations, resorting to forced loans, tampering with justice, removing judges, imprisoning obnoxious men without trial, insulting and humiliating the Puritans, and openly encouraging a religion of millineries and upholsteries, not only illegally, but against the wishes and sentiments of the better part of the nation, thus undermining his own throne, for all thrones are based on the love of the people. The financial difficulties of the king, for the most absolute of kings cannot extort all the money they want, compelled him to assemble another parliament and an alarming crisis of popular indignation which he did not see, when popular leaders began to say that even kings must rule by the people and not without the people. This new parliament, with Hampton and Pym for leaders, though fierce and aggressive, would have been contented with constitutional reform, like Mirabeau at one period. But the king, ill-advised, obstinate, blinded, would not accept reform. He would reign like the Bourbons, or not at all. The reforms which the Parliament desired were reasonable and just. It would abolish arbitrary arrests, the Star Chamber decrees, taxes without its consent, cruelty to nonconformists, the ascendancy of priests, irresponsible ministers, and offensive symbols of Romanism. If these reforms had been granted, and such a sovereign as Elizabeth would have yielded, however reluctantly, there would have been no English Revolution. 
or even if the popular leaders had been more patient and waited for their time and been willing to carry out these reforms constitutionally, there would have been no revolution. But neither the king nor parliament would yield, and the parliament was dissolved. The next parliament was not only angry, it was defiant and unscrupulous. It resolved on revolution and determined to put the king himself aside. It began with vigorous measures and impeached both Loud and Strafford, doubtless very able men but not fitted for their times. It decreed sweeping changes, usurped the executive authority, appealed to arms, and made war on the government. The king also on his part appealed to the sword, which now alone could settle the difficulties. The contest was inevitable. The nation clamored for reform. The king would not grant it. The parliament would not wait to secure it constitutionally. Both parties were angry and resolute. Reason departed from the councils of the nation, passion now ruled, and civil war began. It was not at first a question about the form of government, whether a king or an elected ruler should bear sway. It was purely a question of reforms in the existing government, limiting, of course, the power of the king. But reforms deemed so vital to the welfare of the nation that the best people were willing to shed their blood to secure them. And if reason and moderation could have borne sway, that angry strife might have been averted. But people will not listen to reason in times of maddening revolution. They prefer to fight and run their chances and incur the penalty. And when contending parties appeal to the sword, then all ordinary rules are set aside, and success belongs to the stronger, and the victors exact what they please. The rules of all deadly and desperate warfare seem to recognize this. The fortune of war put the king into the hands of the revolutionists, and in fear, more than in vengeance, they executed him just what he would have done to their leaders if he had won. Stone dead, said Falkland, hath no fellow. In a national conflagration we lose sight of laws, even of written constitutions. Great necessities compel extraordinary measures, not such as are sustained either by reason or precedence. The great lesson of war, especially of civil war, is that contending parties might better make great concessions than resort to it, for it is certain to demoralize a nation. Heated partisans hate compromise, yet war itself generally ends in compromise. It is interesting to see how many constitutions, how many institutions, in both church and state, are based on compromise. Now it was amid all the fierce contentions of that revolutionary age, an age of intense earnestness, when the grandest truths were agitated, an age of experiment, of bold discussions, of wild fanaticisms, of bitter hatreds, of unconquerable prejudices, yet of great loftiness and spiritual power that the star of Oliver Cromwell arose. He was born in the year 1599 of a good family. He was a country squire, a gentleman farmer, though not much given to fox hunting or dinner hilarities, preferring to read political pamphlets, or to listen to long sermons, or to hold discussions on grace, predestination, free will, and foreknowledge absolute. His favorite doctrine was the second coming of Christ and the reign of the saints, the elect, to whom of course he belonged. He had visions and rhapsodies, and believed in special divine illumination. Cromwell was not a Presbyterian, but an Independent, and the Independents were the most advanced party of his day, both in politics and religion. The progressive man of that age was a Calvinist, in all the grandeur and in all the narrowness of that unfashionable and misunderstood creed. The time had not come for advanced thinkers to repudiate a personal god and supernatural agencies. Then an atheist or even a deist, and indeed a materialist of the school of Democritus and Lucretius, was unknown. John Milton was one of the representative men of the Puritans of the 17th century, men who colonized New England and planted the germs of institutions which have spread to the Rocky Mountains. Cromwell on his farm, one of the landed gentry, had a Cambridge education and was early an influential man. 
His sagacity, his intelligence, his honesty, and his lofty religious life marked him out as a fit person to represent his county in Parliament. He at once became the associate of such men as Hampton and Pym. He did not make very graceful speeches, he had an ungainly person, but he was eloquent in a rude way since he had strong convictions and good sense. He was probably violent, for he hated the abuses of the times, and he hated Rome and the prelacy. He represented the extreme left, that is, he was a radical and preferred revolution to tyranny. Yet even he would probably have accepted reform if reform had been possible without violence. But Cromwell had no faith in the king or his ministers, and was inclined to summary measures. He afterward showed this tendency of character in his military career. He was one of those earnest, practical people who could not be fooled with, so he became a leader of those who were most violent against the government. During the long Parliament, Cromwell sat for Cambridge, which fact shows that he was then a marked man, far from being unimportant. This was the Parliament, assembled in 1640, which impeached Strafford and Loud, which abolished the Star Chamber, and inaugurated the Civil War, that began when Charles left Whitehall, January 1642, for York. The Parliament solicited contributions, called out the militia, and appointed to the command of the forces the Earl of Essex, a Presbyterian, who established his headquarters at Northampton, while Charles unfurled the royal standard at Nottingham. Cromwell was forty-two when he buckled on his sword as a volunteer. He subscribed five hundred pounds to the cause of liberty, raised a troop of horse, which gradually swelled into that famous regiment of one thousand men, called Ironsides, which was never beaten. Of this regiment he was made a colonel in the spring of 1643. He had distinguished himself at Edgehill in the first year of the war, but he drew upon himself the eyes of the nation at the Battle of Marston Moor, July 1644, gained by the discipline of his men, which put the north of England into the hands of Parliament. He was then lieutenant-general, second in command to the Earl of Manchester. The Second Battle of Newbury, though a success, gave Cromwell, then one of the most influential members of Parliament, an occasion to complain of the imbecility of the noblemen who controlled the army, and who were Presbyterians. The self-denying ordinance, which prohibited members of Parliament from command in the army, was a blow at Presbyterianism and aristocracy, and marked the growing power of the independents. It was planned by Cromwell, although it would have deprived him also of his command, but he was made an exception to the rule, and he knew he would be, since his party could not spare him. Then was fought the Battle of Naseby, June 14, 1645, in which Cromwell commanded the right wing of the army. Fairfax, nominally his superior general, the center, and Ireton, the left, against Prince Rupert and Charles. The battle was won by the bravery of Cromwell, and decided the fortunes of the king, although he was still able to keep the field. Cromwell now became the foremost man in England. For two years he resided chiefly in London, taking an important part in negotiations with the king, and in the contest between the Independents and Presbyterians, the former of which represented the army, while the latter still had the ascendancy in Parliament. On the 16th of August, 1648, was fought the Battle of Preston, in which Cromwell defeated the Scotch army commanded by the Duke of Hamilton, which opened Edinburgh to his victorious troops, and made him commander-in-chief of the armies of the Commonwealth. The Presbyterians, at least of Scotland, it would seem, preferred now the restoration of the king to the ascendancy of Cromwell with the army to back him for it was the army and not the parliament which had given him supreme command then followed the rapid conquest of the scots the return of the victorious general to london and the suppression of the liberty of parliament for it was purged of its presbyterian leaders the ascendancy of the independence began for though in a minority they were backed by an army which obeyed implicitly the commands and even the wishes of cromwell 
the great tragedy which disgraced the revolution was now acted the unfortunate king whose fate was sealed at the battle of naseby after various vicissitudes and defeats put himself into the hands of the scots and made a league with the presbyterians after edinburgh was taken they virtually sold him to the victor who caused him to be brought in bitter mockery to hampton court where he was treated with ironical respect in his reverses charles would have made any concessions and the presbyterians who first took up arms against him would perhaps have accepted them but it was too late cromwell and the independents now reigned a party that had been driven into violent measures and which had sought the subversion of the monarchy itself charles is brought to a mock trial by a decimated parliament is condemned and executed and the old monarchy is supplanted by a military despotism the roaring conflagration of anarchies is succeeded by the rule of the strongest man much has been written and said about that execution or martyrdom or crime as it has been variously viewed by partisans it simply was the sequence of the revolution of the appeal of both parties to the sword it may have been necessary or unnecessary a blunder or a crime but it was the logical result of a bitter war it was the cruel policy of a conquering power those who supported it were able men who deemed it the wisest thing to do who dreaded a reaction who feared for themselves and sought by this means to perpetuate their sway as one of the acts of revolution it must be judged by the revolution itself the point is not whether it was wrong to take the life of the king if it were a military necessity or seemed to be to the great leaders of the day but whether it was right to take up arms in defense of rights which might have been gained by protracted constitutional agitation and resistance the execution proved a blunder because it did not take away the rights of charles the second and created great abhorrence and indignation not merely in foreign countries but among a majority of the english people themselves and these too who had the prestige of wealth and culture i do not believe the presbyterian party as represented by hampton and pym and who like mirabeau had applied the torch to revolutionary passions would have consented to this foolish murder certainly the episcopalians would not have executed charles even if they could have been induced to cripple him but war is a conflagration nothing can stop its ravages when it has fairly begun they who go to war must abide the issue of war they who take the sword must be prepared to perish by the sword thus far in the history of the world very few rights have been gained by civil war which could not have been gained in the end without it the great rights which the people have secured in england for two hundred years are the result of an appeal to reason and justice the second revolution was bloodless the parliament which first arrayed itself against the government of charles was no mean foe even if it had not resorted to arms it held the purse strings it had the power to cripple the king and to worry him into concessions but if the king was resolved to attack the parliament itself and coerce it by a standing army and destroy all liberty in england then the question assumed another shape the war then became defensive and was plainly justifiable and charles could but accept the issue even his own execution if it seemed necessary to his conquerors they took up arms in self-defense and war of course brought to light the energies and talents of the greatest general who as victor would have his reward cromwell concluded to sweep away the old monarchy and reign himself instead and the execution of the king was one of his war measures it was the penalty charles paid for making war on his subjects instead of ruling them according to the laws his fate was hard and sad we feel more compassion than indignation in our times he would have been permitted to run away but those stern and angry old revolutionists demanded his blood for this cruel or necessary act cromwell is responsible more than any man in england since he could have prevented it if he pleased he ruled the army which ruled the parliament 
It was not the nation, or the representatives of the nation, who decreed the execution of Charles. It was the army and the purged parliament, composed chiefly of independents, who wanted the subversion of the monarchy itself. Technically, Charles was tried by the parliament, or the judges appointed by them. Really, Cromwell was at the bottom of the affair, as much as John Calvin was responsible for the burning of Servetus, let partisans say what they please. There never has a great crime or blunder been committed on this earth which bigoted or narrow or zealous partisans have not attempted to justify. Bigoted Catholics have justified even the slaughter of St. Bartholomew. Partisans have no law but expediency. All Jesuits, political, religious, and social, and the Catholic and Protestant churches alike, seem to think that the end justifies the means, even in the most beneficent reforms, and when pushed to the wall by the logic of opponents, will fall back on the examples of the Old Testament. In defense of lying and cheating, they will quote Abraham at the court of Pharaoh. There is no insult to the human understanding more flagrant than the doctrine that we may do evil that good may come. And yet the politics and reforms of the 16th and 17th centuries seem to have been based on that miserable form of Jesuitism. Here Machiavelli is as vulnerable as Escobar, and Burley as well as Oliver Cromwell, who was not more profound in dissimulation than Queen Elizabeth herself. The best excuse we can render for the political and religious crimes of that age is that they were in accordance with his ideas. And who is superior to the ideas of his age? On the execution of the king, the supreme authority was nominally in the hands of Parliament. Of course, all kinds of anarchies prevailed, and all government was unsettled. Charles II was proclaimed king by the Scots, while the Duke of Ormond and Ireland joined the royal party to seat Charles II on the throne. In this exigency, Cromwell was appointed by the Parliament Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. Then followed the conquest of Ireland, in which Cromwell distinguished himself for great military abilities. His vigorous and uncompromising measures, especially his slaughter of the garrison of Drogheda, a retaliatory act, have been severely commented on. But war in the hand of masters is never carried on sentimentally. The test of ability is success. The measures were doubtless hard and severe, but Cromwell knew what he was about. He wished to bring the war to a speedy close, and intimidation was probably the best course to pursue. Those impracticable Irish never afterwards molested him. In less than a year he was at leisure to oppose Charles II in Scotland, and on the resignation of Fairfax he was made captain-general of all the forces in the empire. The Battle of Dunbar resulted in the total defeat of the Scots, while the crowning mercy at Worcester, September 3, 1651, utterly blasted the hopes of Charles and completely annihilated his forces. The Civil War, which raged nine years, was now finished, and Cromwell became supreme. But even the decimated Parliament was jealous, and raised an issue, on which Cromwell dissolved it with a file of soldiers, and assembled another, neither elective nor representative, composed of his creatures, without experience, chiefly Anabaptists and Independents, which he soon did away with. He then called a council of leading men, who made him Lord Protector, December 13, 1653. Even the shadow of constitutional authority now vanishes, and Cromwell rules with absolute and untrammeled power, like Julius Caesar or Napoleon Bonaparte. He rules on the very principles which he condemned in Charles I. The revolution ends in a military despotism. End of section 11